At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. The following is a My Talk 1071 production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, <laughs> who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you're listening to Makers of Minnesota, the podcast. We are on Lucky Episode 13. I appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the podcast that you've listened to so far, whether you're listening to us on Podcast One or perhaps you're listening to us on iTunes, if you could rate those podcasts, that would be great. It really helps get the word out. I appreciate all the support. And, of course, you can always find us at uh, Makers of Minnesota on Facebook. We've also got a Twitter account and Instagram where we can highlight some of the stories of the makers that we have talked to so far in the Twin Cities uh, this week, I'm very excited to talk to Laura Lavac, and uh, she is from Laura Lavac Designs. And I first ran across you, Laura, when I was shopping at a local store that has, I think, three locations now in the Twin Cities, Poppy. Yes, Welcome that's right. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So I love talking to local designers for a couple of reasons. Number one is you design, but I just have like this sense of like how does this happen how do you wake up one day and you're in your grown-up life and you're like you know what I am gonna design clothing and I'm going to manufacture it and I'm going to go and sell it to stores it seems like it would be such a challenging project so tell me how you got started with Laura Levac Designs yes well um, I really never took it seriously as a career Um, even though I was a skilled sewer by the time I was a teenager. I started sewing um, about ten, when I was 10 years old. You did. My uh, One day I just asked my mom how to use her sewing machine. Sure. And she kind of chuckled and said, well, this will probably last two weeks. Okay, here's forwards, backwards, good luck, goodbye. And somehow I just, it, I took to it and I just loved doing it. And um, I'm just kind of that person that likes to keep busy all the time. I sure. think they probably would have given me some kind of label if they labeled kids <laughs> back in those Isn't days. That but, the truth? <laughs> but, um, you know, I've been compared to my father often because he's the same way. He's very creative. He's an engineer. Um, he also loves to do woodworking and he's just a hobbyist in, on so many levels. And so this was my first thing. And, um, I literally loved it so much that it started to take priority through growing up. And all my friends and family would say, Laura, you got to go and be a fashion designer when you grow up. And and I just kind of laughed and, and thought, oh, yeah, right. You know, I just never thought it seemed very practical. Did you wear the stuff that you made, like, growing up? Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah, I'd go to school and, you know, so that's, uh, people are always asking me and they uh, starting since childhood. Did you make it? Did you make it? And it's gotten to the point where um, I almost don't want to go out of the house without wearing something yeah, of mine because of people are going to expect that I wore it anyway. And now, of course, it's it's much easier because uh, now that I'm in manufacturing, um, my wardrobe has gotten a little bigger. But 
Um, I actually started school as an engineer in the in in the days uh, when I was in high school. Women in technology was kind of a big trend. Yeah. So that sounded like something I'd sure. want to do. That's what my dad did. And so I started school and I got through about two years of engineering at the Institute of Technology at the U of M, which is called something else now, I think. Sure. And I just at one, I, I, I kind of hit the wall because I realized I don't love this. That's going to be a problem. Um, and then in the dorms, I had a girlfriend. Her name is Sarah Starr. And she was taking classes at the University of Minnesota in clothing design. And as soon as I saw what she was doing, all of a sudden, that love for fashion and design and clothing just opened up inside me. And I was so envious of her projects. So I just got all this information and, you know, learned more about the program. And I ended up just switching my major cold turkey the next quarter and finished up all the credits I needed and changed my major to fashion design and graduated from the University of Minnesota. So you did. That's really interesting. Good for you for having that insight so early on. I think college is a time where you're not necessarily sure of your choices. Exactly. And I do feel lucky in that way, too, because it takes you got started right away. Right. And so right out of college, I somehow was crazy enough to think that I wanted to have my own business. So I looked for freelance opportunities and where I could kind of fit into the Twin Cities market. And I found them Um, a lot. This the Twin Cities isn't exactly a garment capital of the country, but there's all kinds of different businesses. And I realized that there's there's always some sort of connection to apparel or sewing goods in almost every business. So um, I was, back in the 90s, it was, um, there were companies like, uh, athletic companies doing hard goods like yep. Rollerblades and Nordic Track and um, Kawasaki. Yep. All these companies had either headquarters or some sort of arm in the Twin Cities here. And I found work doing product development uh, mostly patterns and samples. And then that led to realizing that, gosh, I've got my foot in the door. They need manufacturing. Why don't I set up manufacturing? Makes So were you actually, ma- like, tell me an example yeah. of a product that you sure. would have worked on in the 90s. Yeah. So uh, Rollerblade started a clothing line to go with their rollerblades. Makes sense. Yeah. You must have worked with Scott Olson. Um, actually, it was right after he was okay. bought out of the project. He was the um, founder originally right. and went to high school at my high school. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he was definitely a, a legend at uh, Rollerblade. Um, but they wanted to, of course, cross-market their products with apparel. Sure. And so they hired a design team, and they heard about me. I or I don't even remember how I got connected. Probably just called him up cold, and they said, "Yeah, come on in, and we'll take a look at what you can do." So I brought did my you cold call. I believe I did on that one. Yeah, okay, uh, you know what? A girlfriend tipped me uh, off that they were going to be starting a clothing line, and she said, "Laura, go in there and see." But what it you would can not be unusual for you to have called a company no. cold and said, "Hi, I'm Laura Havalik." I'm going to say it wrong. I <laughs> it's know all right. It. It's all right. I'm Laura Lavac, <laughs> and I am going yeah. to, I'm a designer. Do you need help designing clothes? You would do that. Yes. It was terrifying back then. It was. But it's still terrifying now, I think, for most people. You That's why what? I asked about it. I love doing it now. And I never thought I'd say that. So, you know, but I've been doing this for over 25 years. Sure. And hopefully some of those things get easier, right? It be- It becomes fun when you have the confidence. And that's, the th- I think, the 
a ticket there. So anyway, regarding Rollerblade, um, I had a meeting with them, brought my portfolio, and I told them what what I could do. And it was, you know, the thing is, my because I started sewing as a kid, I became very technical uh, with the art. And so... And, and there, confident, it sounds like, too. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of... Because there wasn't much industry here, right. there weren't a lot of professional sewers and pattern makers around that really had the skill level. It's one thing to go to school and learn it, but... You know how anything goes. It's practice, practice, practice to sure. get good at a skill like that. So um, they said, "Sounds good. Well, we'll call if you if you need if we need you." And so that was that. Did not hear from them for about two weeks, and then I got a call, and they said, "You know what? We gave our project to another sample maker sewer, and she just couldn't finish it, and we really need your help." But now our time frame is we've lost two weeks. So we need our whole entire line developed with patterns and samples in two weeks. Wow. So I met with them and they said, can you do it? And I said, I think so. <coughs> Sorry. And it's pretty amazing that you could do all that in two weeks. How many pieces did you have to create? I did it. That's a good question. Um, probably there were about a dozen initial pieces and they just gave me drawings um, that's pretty much all I had to go yep. by. But, um, again, I, I knew it was right up my alley cause I was doing athletic stuff. I just sort of fell into that, um, realm of d- working with body conscious knitwear back in that day, mm-hmm. you know, and bike shorts were still, were just sort of a new little trendy thing. Yep. Um, so I was used to working with those fabrics. So I felt like I really fell into a, a lucky place and I did. And, um, I showed them the samples and they were very pleased, and they said, you know, um, you've got the fit and our concept right almost on the first try. So we did some tweaking, and then it went into production, and the rest is history. And so I worked with them for quite uh, probably a few years on development, <coughs> and um, and that led to other things. Um, again, uh, Nordic Trek did the same thing. They wanted an apparel with their logo on it um, to to sell with their equipment, yep. and so I got in there and did some manufacturing for them. That was the company that I kind of started out on the manufacturing So level. let's talk about that. So now you've honed the skill of actually being able to make a pattern and design something that people would like to wear. You're working with some unique uh, fabrics, stretchier, probably more like latex, spandex, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Lycra, I guess, not latex. And then you are going to do manufacturing. How did you have any sense of... Like how we're going to manufacture this. And were there manufacturers of clothing in the Twin Cities at that time? Or were you having to go overseas? Yeah, good question. Because there were really not hardly any manufacturing resources in the Twin Cities. There were a couple um, companies that were around for a long time doing their own products. But I've watched them since close their doors and auction all their equipment away. Which, of course, became a little bit of a benefit to me because I bought up some of that equipment. Sure. You know very inexpensive. But um, this goes, okay, this, I started, I learned a little bit about manufacturing when I worked for, I found a small manufacturer. Actually, they found me. It was kind of a fun story. I literally was, it was, I was in college. I was riding my bike to the grocery store, Rainbow Foods, and I was locking up my bike and some guy walks by and says, cool bike shorts, where'd you get them? And I said, I made them. And he's like, really? <laughs> and it was just the craziest thing. He said, well, my wife has a manufacturing company at making bike shorts and she's looking for some help. Would you be interested? I said, how funny is that? 
about that, right? That's yep. kind of those stories that you go, wow, I was kind of discovered. And it led to the next step of my learning process about manufacturing. Um, the company was called Attack Sports, and they made bicycle clothing. And the woman that started it, her name was Chris, she was a bike racer. And she realized there wasn't enough quality and function in what she was looking for. So she started this company and she sold to many bike stores all over the Twin Cities area. So, the, um, and she had industrial equipment, which is completely different than domestic sewing equipment, the kind of sewing machine your mom has. Right. And I didn't realize it. What the, the world that opened up to me was incredible because um, it, it's just a, it was a whole different learning process and I I learned how she cuts would cut layers and layers of fabric so she could be cutting, you know, twenty forty garments at a time yep. through multi layers, and um, the whole process of sewing it with industrial equipment and doing things that your sewing machine couldn't do. Your mom's home sewing machine. And all while all this is going on, are you still mostly designing things for other people yes. and then just sewing your own stuff at home? Exactly, okay. and I. Always loved to sew and design, but it really was only a hobby for the first 20 years of my career. Wow. I'm now approaching year 30. I, I'm aging myself Aren't right there. But um, the first 20 years was really focused on what the industry calls private label, which is designing and or developing products for other companies and yep. then and sourcing the materials and running the manufacturing, whether it be domestic, which I did for many years. And then it became necessary to go overseas and manufacture. So let's talk about mm -hmm. that because in a lot of trades, like I was in the printing business, people started, if they were printing mass quantities, there became some economies of scale to print things overseas when shipping became a little easier. So you're domestically helping manufacture these products that you're designing. And then when did the overseas part become more obvious that was it because you got to a certain level of how much was getting ordered that overseas became part of it? That is part of it. And actually, I think I, I probably, it was actually a customer request. Basically, a customer that I had helped getting, uh, got, I, I helped them get up and running, yep. develop their very first product. This was actually a fishing product. So I did more than just apparel. Like, I kind of did whatever came my sure. way, right? You do this to survive and and um and thrive and if you can do it you do it um and it what it was it was a uh, what they call it a sea anchor and you throw it over the side of your boat to slow your boat from drifting uh, in a stream or to slow the trolling motor while fishing okay. i guess it's a very common product that now many companies make but back then um the inventor had a novel way of doing it and um I had been working with that company for over 10 years at this point. Um, I've sur I survived three owners. This, this is business. It yep. never stays the same. It keeps changing. They basically came to me and said, okay, um, our competitors are catching up to us, and there's other similar products out in the marketplace that are cheaper. So we either you have to take our product overseas and make it, or we need to find someone else to do it. Right. So we thought... Okay, let's do it. And it was really kind of a nice way of bringing us overseas on a first project because we had the volume established at that point. We were making making so many of them in, in the U.S. with 
are U.S. sewers. And um, it was also a natural transition for us, happily, um, because my husband at the time, Wayne, his father was doing business overseas in China already. Um, he was a manufacturer of shampoos and conditioners and pharmaceuticals and all kinds of wow. that sort of thing okay. in town here in the Twin Cities. And same thing happened to him. He needed to bring his cost down. So he partnered with a Chinese manufacturer who also had a sewn goods division of their company. So it was wow. such a nice Easy way for Wayne to go over there, make the connection, start working with that manufacturer, which is what we did. Okay. So that's really, again, very uh, fortuitous that you, because for a lot of people, starting to work overseas is a real challenge. Obviously, there's language barriers. You're having to travel. You don't know the lay of the land. Um, I imagine that having that manufacturing in made a big difference for you. Absolutely. Now we were able to offer lower cost products. Right. And having the U.S. capability was also, it, it was a real nice synergy to have both of them um, a complimentary situation because if I needed a small run or if I needed to make a little change or I could do all the samples in the U.S., um, you know, there were, there's, is, that has been a real nice advantage for me to actually okay. continue to do both. And I still do that to this day. Sure. I work with a lot of sewers in the Twin Cities area who are, you know, manufacturing um, and doing samples and working with me as well. So at this point, uh, do you have, because you've got some children. So did the children get sprinkled in along the way? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I really, you know, both Wayne and I never really, we wanted children uh, starting out. And uh, we were married eight years before yep. children, but, uh, you know, it just kind of started happening. And, and, and I have to admit, none of them were exactly planned. Sure. But, um, yeah, three children later, um, the children grew up with the around our business, and um, now now they range from ages 14 to 20. Okay, so <laughs> you're now manufacturing. When do you decide to go off and do Laura Lavac Designs and really just, and maybe you still do freelance for other people, I don't know, but I became aware of this clothing line, and it was again at Poppy, and she said, oh, you know, the lady that's um, that designs this clothing is local, because you have a real distinct look with the knits that you use, I think. Um, so tell me about that transition. Sure. It was really became an, a matter of I need to to save my business and to continue to to have this livelihood. I needed to do something. I needed to sell my creativity, not just my technical ability and my manufacturing experience. Sure. Um, because the private label business was up and down. Yeah. I had some amazing, wonderful, lucrative years, and I had some really, really crappy years. And did it ever occur to you that you should do something else, or were you always, thinking? I always thought that, you know, and again, um, I have to say my father-in-law was such a, a fantastic mentor to me. And he said, you know, if you're making a product on someone else's specs, they can take it to another manufacturer anytime, and your business is over. And he was right. I usually had all my eggs in two or three big baskets. Right. 
And when one leaves, for whatever reason, and it's usually for reasons beyond your control. Yeah, not you personal. Know? Just, exactly. I mean, yep. Rollerblades sold their company and, you know, Nordic Trek did the same thing. Corporations have a life and they live and they die. <laughs> and um, so I knew that I would have to do that at some point. So I never stopped creating on my own. And of course, once the children came, that was my biggest creative inspiration ever. I started designing little girls' dresses and children's clothes, which led to a store I had. I opened a retail store in Linden Hills called Daughters and Sons, and I'm sure some of your listeners will remember sure. that. Um, I was there five years um, in up- Upton and I think 43rd, which ironically is right across the street from where Poppy is now. Right. So I'm really happy that I'm back in that neighborhood and, and uh, also bringing my creativity there again because it was a wonderful community. So you decided to go off on your own. Were you designing things for other people and going off on your own and doing the mom thing? So what was, I mean, to start a retail store, how much, do you remember how much money you had to start it? Mm, That's a good question. Well, the re, I don't, I can't really say a dollar amount, but our, our manufacturing business in China was doing very well. It was very strong. And it was a good time to invest in this, you know, smaller project that hopefully would lead to our long-term future, knowing that those private label customers would come and go. So this was going to be kind of the more secure thing. Um, But I learned uh, kind of the hard way, which kind of the way I learned things. Um, Opening a retail store is one of the hardest businesses you can choose to do. Absolutely. (laughs) And not only that, of course, I was crazy enough to design and manufacture locally almost everything in that store. Right. I did purchase some things. I had some wooden toys, and I tried to use local people and and even some, you know, smaller clothing lines here and there. But um, 80% of the the merchandise were items that I had designed and had manufactured with my local sewers. So it was kind of a double whammy of craziness. (laughs) Um, And and, uh, in hindsight, I think I would have been better off um, going the wholesale route yep. and selling to boutiques and instead of just limiting myself to one retail location. But I tell you, it it right it was such a good thing because it's really taught me um, some important insight of of what it's like to, to run a, that kind of business. I mean, my customers now are boutique owners of brick and mortar stores, so I had that experience. I know how hard it is. I know how hard you have to work. And I just, I, I really respect and admire the women that have been able to stick it out. Um, I also realized that uh, women's clothing is where I needed to be, which was, again, the last thing I had in my mind because I thought, Don't, isn't there enough women's clothing already out there? Yeah, Aren't there enough manufacturers? Kids, how did yeah. you make the transition from kids to women's? Well, you know, I was sort of lucky that the time I was designing kids' clothing, there was sort of a trend of people looking for higher and more premium quality and design for kids. And this was uh, the mid-2000s? Yeah, let's see. It was late 90s because I closed the store when I got pregnant with my third child, Levi, because it just became so overwhelming. Yeah. And I realized I needed to pull back. And the, and again, the private label business was still strong. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy my last kid here and just yep. 
dial it back a little bit and regroup and see what I need to do. Um, so I did that, and um, I started dab. Well, the thing is, I I realized that I can only go so far with the women's or with the children's clothing. I think if I would have stuck at it, and this is this is something I truly believe that whatever you do in business, um, what uh, creatively or whatever, if you stick with it long enough and you work hard enough, you will be successful. You will find the path to that. Um, I could have continued the retail store. I could have continued the children's clothing, um, but I didn't follow through with it. I gave it all up and I set it aside and I decided to regroup and do something else. And I'm glad I did it because... Was that a painful choice to make or was because you were pregnant with your a third... A little bit, yeah. You felt like... It's hard to give up or to feel that mm-hmm. you've given up did on something. Did you feel like you'd failed? Um, I did not because the store was... It, I mean, it was becoming very profitable. Yep. And, and so you closed a profitable store. I did. <laughs> they say that uh, stores take five years to make money. I was right at that five-year point. So I had kind of given up at a critical time. Yep. But I realized um, I felt like I needed to, I felt like I had maximized the space. It was a small 500 square feet space. And I felt like to really take the the sales needed to grow to, just you know, some a little higher. I mean, I was I was over the break even point, but not enough to be really profitable. Well, and there are levels I think yeah. in business. Um, I can recall in my own business four distinct levels, and it was at the fourth level that we decided to sell because to make that reinvestment to get right. to the next level, right? You know, there was just going to be more than I could stomach and more than I was prepared to do. So I do think you kind of get to those levels. Yeah. So you have your third child and you've closed the store and were you able to dial it back? Were you able to enjoy being a mom in a different way than you had having a retail location for five years or did you start right away in your mind itching for the next thing? You know, I think I was itching for the next thing, but I was, I was intent on just giving myself a break and relaxing and, you know, I had... I had to, you know, you always have, we close the store, you've got all that stuff and you got to, you know, you've got merchandise and you want to clean out. And um, the next step was a result of a very sad event that occurred that needs to be mentioned. Um, we, we had, a, uh, we had hired uh, an employee to help us bring our, private label business to the next level. Okay. And he was, we put him in sales and, um, it was, it seemed like the best thing we could do, grow the business, get some more customers, strengthen this private label. That was our direction. The store was fun, but it was a little creative distraction. And, and now Laura's focusing on babies and trying to relax. Right. Exactly. Um, well, it was harder than we thought for him him to be successful in that role, even though he really, we felt, did a good job of trying. A lot yep. of cold calling. A lot of, we realized that, you know, it's uh, it's a different kind of business. And, and we didn't know anything about selling in the private label business. We had ridden a very lucky wave, and we didn't realize that was a, a lucky wave. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it's not necessarily out there anymore. And I think the economy affected things. We were stuck. So we decided to, to in, you know, we, we took a Wayne and I both took a huge salary cut to, yep. to to hire this person. He had an MBA. We really, you know, we gave him a substantial salary. 
Um, so we put them more into uh, the nuts and bolts of the business. Um, running the business, we thought, well, maybe we'll do the sales. Or yep. Wayne will do the sales. Um, sadly, the long story short is um, he helped uh, our customers. Uh, basically, he stole our largest customer and sabotaged our second largest customer while trying to steal it. And now our eggs are basically in these three, bas- three, three baskets. 80% of our income was wiped out overnight. And we had Whoa. to really reinvent our business to stay alive. We looked at... And just to back up. Yeah. So bad things like that happen to people in business. You sometimes hire the wrong people or, you know, um, you get into situations where people are not the people you thought they were, I guess is the nice way to say that. Tell me about when you found that out, when your biggest customer says to you, oh, and by the way, we're going to work with Joe Blow here and we don't need you anymore. Well, actually, I kind of start saw it start to slip away because of some unusual behavior that started to concern me. Um, working with him on a daily basis, he would go outside and talk on his phone and do some of those sure. things. And it was a really creepy feeling to feel like there, someone in your home in your world in your business is ripping you off and um and i'm going to back up one other step too because it kind of came in the same year where my marriage fell apart and that was a sad thing too but we all know that happens as well it's not easy to be married and it's sure not easy to work with your husband and you and wayne were partners in this business right you're on your third kid You've uh, taken the business lots of different directions, still trying to kind of find the sweet spot that works for you both personally and professionally. I can tell you personally just my own story. My husband and I um, almost got divorced in the course of having our business together. We managed to get through it, but we both look back on that time as really just so challenging, trying to work together, trying to carve out whose roles was were what, mm-hmm. trying to then have your personal life and your parenting life it is super challenging. So you had to feel very, I mean, was this all happening in the course of one year or 18 months or what was this time frame? Because I can't even imagine. You've had a baby, you have an employee that has taken your largest customer and now you're getting divorced. What's that time frame like? Yeah, it was about in, it was one year. Oh my gosh. Time. So yeah. Um, so yeah, my heart was broken, but I always thought to myself at that time, that kind of happened first. And I thought, well, at least I'm financially secure. You know, you hang on to the good when yep. something bad happens, right? Yep. And then six months after that event, my business crashed. So we were in a real, real tough spot. And trying to navigate this when you've got a baby and two young girls. Um, yeah, it was left, life was rough. But, so you know, you're now and Wayne's got his own household, I'm assuming. You've got your household, and now your income has been cut 80%, which let's, I mean, divorce is never inexpensive for anyone because you take what you had and you split it in half. So tell me about, like, can you just remember laying in bed one of those days Mm. and thinking, what the heck am I going to do here? It had to be just so challenging, and you've still got a baby and two other kids and your house, your life. Right. And, um, you know, we're having a hard time getting along and figuring out how we're going to navigate the future. Um, Our income is so tied together. We we really 
tried to figure out what are we going to do? Are we going to go get jobs? Should we go get jobs? Yep. And you know, and can I just at that yeah. point, someone said to me once, after five years of working for yourself, you were unemployable, Stephanie. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you feel kind of Abs. unemployable because you Abs. worked for yourself for so yeah. long? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. For sure. Um, I realized that if I did try to get back into the marketplace, which we're, let's face it, there's not a whole lot of apparel companies sure. to go knocking on their door. You know, what am I qualified to do? How behind I am? Am I in technology? Yeah. You know, and what's what they're using out there. So um, it came down to, no, I am not going to give up my autonomy. I love what I have built. I can do it again. I can redefine myself and I have to do this. And again, I had never really stopped dabbling. Yep. And I had been working with a couple boutiques in town for years, just on a small scale, but things started to build right away and we started seeing some promise. And so we just realized that this is the direction that we really have to invest in. And did you realize that you needed him, Wayne, at this point? So now you're divorced He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do. You have these kids together, obviously, in a life. Was there ever in your mind, like, I'm going to do this without him? We're divorced. I can go my own way. Or did you always feel like your complementary skill sets were such that you needed to hang on to that? We decided, yes, that we need to continue to working working together for a lot of those reasons that you mentioned. Um you know, did your friends and family think you were nuts? Um, <laughs> I don't think they knew what to think. They thank God for them because they, I think, just you know, by just being present and supportive, they really just helped us navigate through this all. And yep. they, they just, you know, one thing we really wanted to do is to stay at, stay friends. We wanted to continue working together. Um, we felt we made good partners. Yep. And so, um, we just kind of put our eyes in that direction and said, okay, how are we going to define it? We did argue a little bit because he did want to continue going the private label route. Yep. He really felt strongly that that's what our business has been successful in doing. We haven't been really proven the success on the design level. And he was right. And that's when I knew that I the only way to get there is I had to prove it myself without the support of my business partner at the time. Yeah. Um, we committed to to sticking this out together and we did and we and he went out and he found some private label customers. Sadly, nothing really stuck and was as successful as our past customers. I think the economy had something to do with it. Sure. Um, but we also realized that we are such, we're still a small fish in a big sea. And when you're working with lar- these large customers that can provide that kind of volume, um, you know, if they want to step on you and wish you out the door, they're going to do it. And there's nothing you can do about it. So it was, it was, a, it's a tough way. It was a, it was a tough road. Um, but once my design started to show promise, it started becoming evident to him, too, that we need to support this direction. We need to invest in this direction, and let's see what we can do. And that was really only about six years ago. Wow. So I'm talking to Laura Lavac from Laura Lavac Design. So I must have run across you right as you were sort of getting launched. Was Poppy one of your first yes. stores? 
She was, in fact, um, I just love Jill Henderson because... She's the owner of Poppy. Yes. I walked in there one day, and I had a pile of clothes, samples, and I was scared to death. This is not easy for me, but I knew that I ha- this had to be something I had yeah. to get used to doing, right? So, um, and she just made it so easy. She said, sure, show me what you got. I'd love to see it. And one by one, I mean, she was so sweet and complimented everything. And she says, okay, let's try this and this. And how do you want to begin? And blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, um, she started filling her store with my clothes and they started selling. And she really was the one who gave me a real nice initial boost of confidence that, you know, really spawned that direction. So you're making the designs. And now did you, were you right away manufacturing your line overseas? Um, almost right away, we started that process partly because we had a factory that we were working with over there, um, that we needed to keep busy. Sure. So we started trying to find ways of keeping all our people happy over there, which was tough because we, we had lost so much business and so much volume and we but these, had to this lay... factory had relied on your business right, for right. some time so i'm sure you felt like Respond. that was important exactly so um yeah uh almost right away and um i don't know the, yeah the rest is history <laughs> so i think i in addition to poppy i've seen you at some pop-up stores uh other retailers that carry you locally are you in a lot of retailers now is that I the am. game is it trying to get into as many places as you can now it is and i was told by a veteran of this business that to make a nice living you need to sell to about 300 boutiques which kind of blew me away i thought 300, how am I ever going to reach that number and manage all that? But you know what? In a matter of years, um, I've sold to well over 200 stores already. Wow. Many of them are listed on my website, laurelovat.com. But my local retailers that have been wonderful support for me, uh, mainstream boutiques, which are located all over the Twin Cities area, mostly in the suburbs. And um, there's several locations with that store. And then Uptown Minnesota has been a wonderful support for me. They have a store in the International Airport. Yep. And they feature local designers and uh, local artisans. And they've been just a fantastic customer. And that's been really exciting for me because then my clothing is being purchased at and kind of sent all over the world. Yeah, in the airport. So you're, I'm trying to describe your look. I love your clothes. Um, they're very easy. They're very polished looking, but casual. Kind of like, I hope this isn't insulting if I tell you, like, maybe like Athleta or that kind right. of wear. Absolutely. Where it's something you can wear with jeans, but a lot of the dresses you could throw on leggings underneath. Or in the summer, I wear a lot of your clothes. Um, size-wise, everything is very um, kind of stretchy, movable fabric. So... I'm a postmenopausal woman. That works for me. I just, uh, the clothes, uh, you're one of your bestsellers, I think, is you've got this sort of tunic that has a cowl neck sort of sweatshirt with the armholes. You're actually wearing it right now. Um, and I just, I've seen that you also have an Etsy site that has different designs than I necessarily am seeing in the store. So are you still kind of doing your own tinkering on that end and testing things there and then bringing it to retail? 
Um, absolutely. Etsy was a really good way to, it's a really good way for any artist to start, um, and to test ideas. And sometimes, you know, I just love fabrics. So sometimes I'll, I'll be at one of my fabric vendors and I'll see something, oh, there's only 20 yards. Well, I can't really offer that to a retailer. Um, or maybe I can only offer it to one or two, but then there's always, plus there's always the the issue of, okay, now that I've done this, I've ran this style, I, I have a small and an extra large left. What am I going to do with it? Right. So Etsy is another way you can kind of, you know, sell some of those items. Uh, oh, I suppose to sell your samples. Yeah. So in a, in a typical day, are you sewing anymore or is everything being manufactured and you're working on the designs and the samples? Now, the funny thing is, uh, I think people have a mental image of me sitting at the sewing machine I on do. a daily that's basis. That's why I asked. Yes. <laughs> and I love that. In fact, that's my favorite days when I can sit at the sewing machine or the cutting table or making patterns and actually putting something together. But honestly, uh, most of my time is spent in front of a computer on the phone, selling. <laughs> out, out selling yeah. and just running the business, the nuts and bolts of it all and ordering from my factories and looking at fabric samples and things like that. Okay. And you are still partners with Wayne. Mm-hmm. And Wayne, am I understanding, I read this story on your website, that Wayne now lives in China. Is that correct? About half the time he lives in China, yes. Okay. Where you manufacture. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be helpful for you. And he got remarried. Mm-hmm. And so he has remarried someone that did it. They work at the factory and now he has a child there. So your kids are sort of multicultural, right? In that they have a half sibling. And I think it was just one. Maybe it's more than one. I'm Actually, sorry. He, yep. He has two children and then his wife has a child from a previous marriage. So they have three together over there now. Okay. And your kids are mm-hmm. kind of, go, they'll go overseas to visit and vice versa it's fascinating to me that not only did you have a marriage that went through a divorce as an entrepreneur, because it happens a lot, but then you've been able to stay in partnership with this person, raise children, embrace his own family with your own children, and that that just all worked out. How hard was that? You know, honestly, it, was, it wasn't easy for sure, but I didn't want to be the ex-wife that was always at odds with the ex-husband. There's yeah. so much of that out there, and it's so sad for the kids. Yeah. And we need to show these kids how to overcome conflict and, you know, how to be married, how to be divorced. I mean, I'd rather be happily divorced than miserably married, right? Yeah. It says <laughs> a lot about you and your husband. I just... I want you to hear that from me because I think it's challenging, but I think, and I always tell my husband, I would be a terrible divorced person. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not that big of a person. Maybe I would surprise myself, but it's, it's challenging. I come from a divorced family. We have lots of haves, lots of remarriages, and it's choices that you make. And you can choose to be miserable or you can choose to sort of accept people where they're at and that people change and that things look different than you thought. Absolutely. And you know, it's so much more of a rewarding life to be in a situation where um, you're you're able to succeed and move forward in life together. Okay, so now our family is just bigger. Yeah. Um, of course, I've traveled to China several times and my two older daughters have and, and they've been able to meet and spend time with their siblings and they just all adore each other. And it's really 
It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and the world has gotten kind of, and maybe it's just me being a grown up, but the world feels like it's getting smaller with social media or, and Facebook. And I mean, you can f- have a Facebook FaceTime with someone in another country and you don't even have to pay for it. It's, it's totally amazing. amazing. The communication. You know, it's a wonderful thing. To be alive and be an artist it, with this technology at our fingertips. I, I mean, I can conceive of something in my head. I can actually make it happen and show it to the world all in the same day. Yeah, and sell it. What power. Which is cool. Um, do you have some things coming up that you're excited about? Any new designs or anything that you're noodling on? Oh, always. It's always, this business is so fast. Just when you think you're done Designing spring, you're on to the next fall. I'm designing fall 2017 right now. So that's exciting. And um, yeah, just uh, doing more traveling. I'm spending time in my my customers' stores, which is really wonderful. I do trunk shows. Yep. Um, It's really fun for me to actually see the end user and watch people try them on. I learn so much and I really try to listen to my customers um, because, like you said, postmenopausal, that is my customer. Yeah. Because... Um, I'm designing for women my age and older and younger, too. And we want to but... look cute, but we also want to be comfortable yeah. and clothes need to have a little bit of movement because your body changes a lot. Right. I mean, we want to, you know, we want to be just as fashionable as we did when we were 20. Yes, we do. Without Don't we? looking Why strange. Not? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, you mentioned, and this is kind of funny, you, I think you probably think I'm a stalker. You happen to kind of live by me in a building that uh, my husband really admires, and we walk past your building a lot. And you mentioned when you first sat down with me that you've been playing music, and I can remember millions of times walking past your house Mm. and hearing drums Mm. and thinking, wow, there's like a band in there. And then I saw one time that there was like clothing that looked like it was sewing, being sewn in there. And I never knew that that actually was your place until more recently so you're a very creative person. You're also in a band and playing music. Is that, I mean, so now that you're like at the computer every day and mm-hmm. sewing less than you want to, I'm assuming that musically kind of is a good creative outlet for you too. Absolutely. I truly believe that fashion and music just, they go together hand in hand. And I feel like the my music interest helps me to step out of my fashion world. Sure. And if I can be creative on the music end, it gives it kind of works that side of the creative brain so that when I come back into fashion, I feel like I got I have a little fresh perspective. So I'm kind of using music as a way to help my, you know, fuel the creative juices for my fashion. And I really think that works. Um, plus, it's just too much fun. Yeah. And, you know, when you go through tough times personally, Music is the thing that feeds your soul and soothes your soul. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think so, actually. <laughs> All right. We are with Laura Lavac. It's lauralavac.com, Laura Lavac Designs. I'll put all the information about your company up on our Facebook page so that people can find your designs. Thank you. Do you have any trunk shows or anything coming up? Uh, let's see. Uh, made in Minnesota. Oh, are you going to do that? Yes. Tracy Dyer from Urban yes. Junk has been on the show. Awesome. Yes. That's an event we always look forward to. And that's coming up, I believe, uh, Friday, November 6th. That's a great event. I won't make it this year. Shoot, I'm going to be out of town. But that's one of my favorite local maker events. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your story and really giving of yourself. 
again, I love buying your clothes. I when I go into Poppy, I go right to and I can just tell your clothes right away. And I'm like, oh, I know this is going to fit. I know that's going to fit. And just keep on keeping on. I look forward to see what you're going to have coming up for. You've already got your summer line done, so I'll mm-hmm. have to take a peek at that. Fall 2017 is where we're at, right, Laura? Yeah. All thanks right. So thanks much. for joining us. All right, Stephanie. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. An F-16 pilot having hydraulic problems with his aircraft managed to parachute to safety as the plane smashed into a warehouse east of Los Angeles. Fire Captain Fernando Herrera. That pilot landed in the uh, March Air Force Base area. In the base itself. Amazingly, there were no serious injuries after the plane hit the building. Alabama executed a man last night for his role in killing four people after an argument over a pickup truck. Tennessee executed a man who killed his wife. Reporters couldn't see the execution, but AP correspondent Travis Lawler says... We could hear sounds, uh, including a singing that uh, uh, Mr. Johnson's attorney says was him singing a hymn. Answering a reporter's question, President Trump said he hopes the U.S. is not on a path to war with Iran. Mr. Trump has dismissed suggestions that any of his advisors are trying to push him into a conflict. I'm Rita Foley.